Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have Caitlin Beatty as our guest to talk about her new book, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. Caitlin is a writer, a journalist, an editor, and a keen observer of trends in the American church. She's written for the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Washington Post, Religion News Service, Religion and Politics, and the Atlantic. This book explores the ways that fame has reshaped the American church, explains how and why celebrity is woven into the fabric of the evangelical movement, and identifies many ways fame has gone awry in recent years. She shows us how evangelical culture is uniquely attracted to celebrity gurus over and against institutions, and she offers a renewed vision of ordinary faithfulness, helping us all to keep fame in its proper place. Well, welcome, Caitlin. We're excited to have you. And I was telling Scott before you got on the call that I heard a rumor that you are a bird watcher. And I know that Scott is fascinated by birds. So I thought I'd just throw that out there. You guys have a little bit in common there with that. That rumor is true. I have been bird watching my whole adult life, mostly thanks to my parents who are bird watchers. So I am up to about 800 species. Not that it's a competition, (laughs) but I try to, like, if I'm traveling, I'll try to tack on a day and pick up some new species. So yeah, it's really fun. It's a way to kind of, it's a window through which to engage nature. Wow. 800. So, so uh, have you seen a red whiskered bulbul? No, I don't (laughs) even know what that bird is. Tell me about it. They're in the United States. Well, and in the mainland they're only in the everglades in florida but Whoa. they're like ubiquitous in hawaii i have to go to hawaii yeah just you, to see this bird you have yeah. to i mean for other reasons i'm sure it's great beyond <laughs> birds but like you know there are specific species you could only see in yes. hawaii so yeah yeah well i'm really impressed by that we i don't ever go bird watching but we watch birds whenever we're walking and I keep my list and now I'm doing it on my phone. And uh, so I don't know how many I, I'm probably, I'm not anywhere near that 800 though. That's impressive. I don't count the ones I've seen in England or Israel or Oh really? No, I just count. Oh, (laughs) that's how I got my tally so high. You know, (laughs) it's nice that you're maybe a little more relaxed about it and less competitive. Yeah. (laughs) My first really known bird watcher was John R.W. Stott. Mm-hmm. And he would always tack on a few days to all his travels mm-hmm. with his camera. He took pictures and he was always watching birds like that. I've not, that's impressive. That is really good. So, <laughs> well, we talked about this book when you were working on it, but I thought it was a fantastic topic. I still think it's a fantastic topic. And I think it's a deeply needed topic. And I'm always asking myself this question as I'm reading your book again for my Substack newsletter, is a celebrity. And what distinguishes a celebrity from someone who's famous? Mm -hmm. I'd just like to hear you talk about it a little bit because people need to hear it if they haven't read it. Yeah, it's a good question. And 
I admit that it can be hard to distinguish sometimes. I think, you know, some of it gets down to the motives behind the motives driving a person to be in the spotlight. And that can be hard to discern from the outside. We don't know other people's motives or hearts. But, you know, I would say fame is something that's been with us at all in all times and places. There have always been people whose accomplishments, whose work, whose virtue, you know, in ancient times, your it would be your family lineage or your military prowess. People would hear about you without really knowing you. And your name and maybe your face would be taken far beyond a particular locale or, you know, it, you would end up in the pages of history. And that's kind of neutral. I think for Christians, the question is, if you end up having fame, what do you do with it? How do you steward it? You end up with a platform, so to speak. Well, what do you do with it? And how do you use it to either bless or harm? Celebrity is really a modern phenomenon because it depends on mass media and the tools of mass media to not just communicate a message. You know, when we're talking about writing and teaching and speaking, all of us to some extent have that. I mean, we're on a podcast right now. So does that make us celebrities? Well, no, it's not just the tools of mass media, but I think relying on mass media to project an image of oneself that draws adoration, that draws the kind of fandom that is really more focused on a persona than the work, you know, than on mm. ideas or teaching. It's really about drawing a kind of, I really, it's, I think it's a kind of intimacy. I think that our relationship to celebrities is less intellectual and more in the realm of love and intimacy and attachment and kind of ultimate things. We talk about hero worship. And for Christians, mm. it's that we kind of see the glory of another person, but they don't become a conduit to us worshiping God, the creator. Like we stop at the created thing. We stop at the person and fixate our attention and adoration on the person rather than the God whose image they bear. Okay, so one time, I won't tell you the publisher. I was working with a new, new. Well, I want to go and, back. Do you think that that distinction? Do you think that definition is right? You know, because I know you've been teasing it out on Substack, and you've like dropped, you've brought my attention to some nuances there. But well, I think your definition. I re I first read it in Andy Crouch. Proximity without intimacy, or is that in the in, intimacy without proximity? Something like this. Social power thought, without proximity. Yeah. I think, you know, especially That's when we're good. talking about celebrities in the church, people who have very large followings. And you're right, Andy has written very well about this. The yeah. distance that mass media creates between the communicator and the listeners, and how it's almost like the more fans you have, the fewer friends you can have, like the fewer people can really know you in an intimate way. And sometimes the celebrity doesn't want to be known, <laughs> you know, they yeah, yeah. because to be known is to be confronted with the fact that not everybody likes you or finds you pleasant to be around all the time. 
They're going to see your flaws. They're going to notice your blind spots. They're going to notice that you have not achieved full sanctification. Like (laughs) they are going to reflect back the honest truth about who you are, which is not the mediated glitzy image that you want to project. Well, I think you're, I think you're right. And I'm just curious about the curation. But as I was saying, I was with the publisher and editor who started talking about branding. And I really didn't know what he meant. <laughs> You're so innocent, thought, Scott. Yeah. I would, but this was years ago. I know what branding is now. But he wanted to brand it. And he said, what brand do we, I thought. My agent, at the, I had an agent at that time who was really doing good work for me. And he knew exactly what was going on. And I said, I do not know what this is. And I, it just doesn't strike me as right. Is that there was some, it was like it was something out there that would be like a tag of who I was. And I, is that's kind of a celebrity thing, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely the kind of, I think what made you feel icky about the branding language is that this person in publishing kind of wanted to take you, you know, and your work and your training and your credentialing and what you have to offer to the church and turn it into something that could be commodified yes, and sold. So definitely part of this conversation is the blending of spirituality, leadership, and commerce. And when you mix those two together, people, these complex people become flattened into something that can be bought and sold. And I think we rightly feel like, yeah, that's not how we're supposed to think of ourselves. That's not how we're supposed to relate to even people whose writing and teaching we appreciate. You know, I I like Beth Moore. I like Tim Keller. But when we start talking about the Tim Keller brand, the Beth Moore brand, there's something inherently dehumanizing going on there. And there's a curation of it, isn't there? Is there a we're working on this brand where we're curating our reputation in the public sector so people think about our product more. That, yeah. Well, we could go on with this. I, you've just made me very curious. I just keep thinking about this. and Because, you know, I, there are people, do I, would I call them famous or a celebrity? You know, I don't think Andy, I look at Andy Stanley, for me, he's famous. I don't think he's a celebrity, but I suppose some people do. I just don't know him well enough to think of him. I don't adore him enough to look at him as a celebrity. Well, I think one of the more interesting sections, the middle of your book is the what you call the three temptations involved in celebrity culture. And so I just wonder if you could go over those just a little bit for us. Yeah, well, I had to find an alliteration to capture these temptations. So in the book, I talk about abusing power, chasing platforms, and creating personas. So because celebrity is a kind of social power, with any kind of power comes the temptation to use it to harm others, to kind of lord your power over other people. So when we're talking about abusing power, when somebody has achieved celebrity status, they really start to believe that they can kind of do and say things that other people can't because they're just that important. And no one is really going to challenge them or curtail their power because the people around them depend on retaining a connection to them for their own 
glory. Mm. Diane Langberg talks about, she uses the phrase refracted light. A lot of, a big reason why it's hard to hold celebrity leaders accountable is because the people around them who are theoretically supposed to hold them accountable get their own version of celebrity because of their connection to them. If I, you know, 15 years ago, if I was working on staff at Mars Hill Church in Seattle and was starting to see some of the issues surrounding Mark Driscoll's leadership, but I also wanted to write a book, and I was also getting asked maybe to speak at regional or national conferences because of the Mars Hill name and because of the Mark Driscoll imprimatur, well, I need to keep that in order to gain access to the book deal. I need Mark Driscoll to sign off on it or endorse it or open doors to the book publisher for me. So I'm not going to say anything because I stand to benefit from standing in this person's, uh, basking in their light. So that's part of why it's so hard to address. We are not lacking stories, <laughs> just examples of kind of the ways that celebrity can both deceive the person who is abusing to, into thinking they can kind of do and say whatever they want. They're above the rules. They're above <laughs> what everybody else has to do. But it can also blind people who are fans. I thought that you were such a great man of God. I, you know, you are the one who brought me to faith. You're larger than life. I watch you preach from stage week in and week out. And so I assumed that you were who you were presenting yourself to be. And little did I know that, you know, there was such a disconnect between the brand, so to speak, that was being presented and the person behind closed doors. So I do have a chapter on platforms, and that's really a chapter about the book publishing industry. And this is a temptation that I'm familiar with because I work in book publishing and I also have published two books now. <laughs> so, you know, not a day goes by in the industry where you don't hear about the need for a platform to sell books. And I think what can end up happening is that if you're a communicator and you Maybe you have a great message to share with other people or teaching or whatever. You start to believe that the platform is the point. You know, if you think about a platform as just a mechanism or a stage that you get up on to share work, you hear if you hear from day one, well, you have to have a platform, you start confusing the ends and the means where the platform itself is the point. And then once you've gotten up on it, you're not even sure what you have to present besides just you, <laughs> you as kind, you are the brand, you know, not a kind of work or message or point of communication or teaching. I talk in the book about the faking of a platform. I think this is something that probably book publishing insiders know about, but I don't know if the Christian public knows about, which is that you can essentially fake a following online. You can buy... <laughs> That you was can, illuminating to me, what you wrote <laughs> about that. You can purchase fake followers and even fake comments to falsely amplify the appearance of a following. And I don't think I'm going to do this because I have conscience issues around it, but I have in mind like a set number of kind of Christian celebrities who I'm pretty sure have purchased fake followers because there are ways that you can tell. and. At the very least, I think this is just a reminder for all of us to remember that numbers don't tell the full picture. They certainly don't tell us 
that someone is uniquely blessed. A big following does not mean specially anointed. A big following doesn't really tell us anything about the value of the message or the teaching. You know, it, the, those numbers are meant to impress. They're not really meant to get you to think about the quality of what's being presented, right? So I just think we need to be wiser about numbers and how we evaluate someone's platform and what that even means. And then, yeah, I in the last chapter on this third temptation, I talk about creating personas. And here I really am arguing that you know, celebrity is bad for the celebrity. You know, I think that's kind of an under explored dimension of what can happen when you find yourself with a celebrity power and the isolating effects of that, the kind of alone at the top phenomenon, and how it's actually not, it's actually not loving to put someone on a pedestal. It's not a loving thing to glorify them or adore them without kind of making sure that they can handle the pressures that are going to come with the spotlight. I talked so I talked to the spiritual formation expert and writer Chuck DeGroat for that chapter in the book who wrote a book a couple of years ago called When Narcissism Comes to Church and he has counseled you know many current and former <laughs> famous pastors who are coming to him because they're realizing that, you know, keeping up this persona is hurting me. It is. It's taking a toll on my mental health. It's taking a toll on my marriage, on my relationships, I, on the people around me. And I just can't do it anymore. Like, I can't keep up yeah. the facade. Help me root my identity and my value in my belovedness in Christ apart from what I can accomplish for this church how many people are coming and filling the pews, how much money we're able to fundraise, you know, help me remember the belovedness in Christ apart from the spotlight and the stage. And some of them will go on a journey with him, you know, over years mm -hmm. to rediscover that. And some of them, probably the ones who are the narcissists, don't want to take that journey because they cannot imagine life without the spotlight. Their sense of worth and identity is so wrapped up with what they get reflected back from an audience or from, you know, at their church, they can't let it go. So there's a, there's an, I think there can be an addictive element here too, being addicted to the spotlight and to the praise. Well, those three temptations are really worth the price of the book right there. Plus all these things. I remember talking to someone who was at a mega church. I've heard this actually in a couple different churches where they said every day, every morning when they drove up to the church, they had to pinch themselves because they thought it was so cool to work at that church. That was that reflected glory and all that. And I'm really, I don't know what you think. It gets into the publishing thing, but I don't like it when publishers give away 200 books to people on their groups on the on the promise or on the condition that they write an Amazon review to drive up the number of Amazon reviews. I've actually told a couple of publishers, I don't want any free books going to people on the condition that they have to write a review on Amazon. And It's because you value honesty, Scott. Yeah. I mean, that's just 
one of many practices, I think, within really on the marketing and sales side of book publishing, where something is presented as something. And when you pull peel back the layer, it's a little more complicated. You know, I yeah. write in the book about essentially <laughs> fake endorsements, which are like, okay, we want an endorsement from this <clears throat> really big name. We want the name on the book. But gosh, they don't have the time to actually sit down and read a book. You know, who has the time to do that? So like one, a member of our marketing team will write up an endorsement, send it to their assistant and say, you know, would he or she say something like this <laughs> and get the person to sign off on it? I mean, if you're a book buyer and you knew that is how endorsements came through, wouldn't that change how you value and read endorsements? Oh, yeah. 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 So there's just this, it's the, yeah, you know, some of why I wanted to write about the book publishing industry is I want Christian readers and book buyers to know some of how the sausage gets made, because that might change yeah. how they evaluate book projects. And I am very grateful that you wrote those words. I, you know, I'm a, I'm an author, so I write these books, but I see these things and I just, I think it's important for people inside because you're an author and you work with a publisher that you see the same thing. So that's good. Now, all your work at Christianity Today gave you a perspective on American evangelicalism and even global evangelicalism in ways that most of us can't grasp because so much is coming at you for so long that you've got to see things. And I wonder if you have any way of thinking about what celebrity culture has done to American evangelicalism and even on Sunday morning. What has this done to us? On Sunday morning, if you're going to a church that centers its brand or kind of public messaging around a particular leader and his preaching and teaching. And he's so charismatic. He's so passionate. Every time he preaches, people come to hear him and flock to hear him. You're walking away from an understanding of church that is overvaluing the gifts of one person. You know, the church is not about going to get our needs met for inspirational teaching. There's nothing wrong with inspirational teaching, but that is yeah, not yeah. the central work of the church in the world. <laughs> you know, so many other people, including yourself, Scott, have written about the ways that a consumerist mindset has creeped into many churches in the United States. We haven't really been immune from a consumerist mindset. So some of this is about thinking of church as a place where you can get your spiritual needs met and who better to offer that than a, a charismatic, well-known, passionate leader who's, wow, he's, you know, at the leadership conference, he's being seen on stage with Bono and <laughs> who are the other famous guys. That he, you know, he's surrounded by celebrity. Isn't it so cool that we go to a church where our pastor is yeah, seen on stage yeah. with Bono or former presidents or secretaries of state. 
So that's part of it. I think some of it is a an approach to church that prioritizes the preaching of the word as the main event. And this is not me saying that preaching, good preaching of the word isn't important, but where if that is the main event, where are, and I'm just going to sound like a snobby Anglican because that's <laughs> what I've become, where are the prayers of the people? Where is the time for confession? Where is the time where we break bread together? Where is the time where we are interacting with the people around us and recognizing this is the body. This is where the body of Christ is, in and among the people. It's not up there solely on the stage. It is among us. Mm. (laughs) And how can you live into that reality if your approach to church is showing up at a building hearing the message, getting what you need, and leaving. And I know that there are lots of large contemporary churches that have small groups and community groups. There are all there are ways to get to know the people in your church outside of Sunday morning. But that can be a big ask if you are conditioned to think of church as, this is about getting my individual needs met. You know, I haven't spoken on many of these big platforms that many times, but I have been on these platforms. There's two experiences that I've had that made me feel, okay, you used the word earlier, icky. And I'll say, that's what I meant. One of them, I was speaking at a church. The lights were so bright. Not only did they, not only did I have to have makeup on the top of my head, <laughs> the lights <laughs> were so bright. Glare. Yes, to avoid a glare. But I couldn't see people. Mm. Now, I'm a teacher. I mm. teach in small classrooms. I have, you know, I think it's a massive room if there's 80 or 90 people in the room for a mm-hmm. classroom. So I teach with, you know, sometimes 10, 20, 30 people. And here I am, and I can't even see people. And that's not how I teach. I, I need to see what's going on in faces to, to go. And the other one is, I've been in churches where they've said to me, when you say these words, the camera is right at the back. We want you to be looking at the camera when you're saying these words at the end. <laughs> I don't know how to talk into a camera. So that's that to me is a just a it's a minor experience, maybe, but it's a symbol of the celebrification or whatever of the Sunday service. Well, what you're describing, Scott, is the experience of It's the distancing effect. The fact that you couldn't see the people in the room and you were encouraged not to look at the people in the room. It's all, it's monologue. Whereas actually good teaching is actually dialogical. It is actually you as the speaker and a teacher actually want to see, are people resonating with what I, you know, is this landing? Is this resonating? It's so encouraging when you're speaking to have people nodding along, like, okay, like I can keep going. People in the black church tradition, there's there there's more of an auditory call and response dynamic that's actually very helpful as a speaker, because teaching is not just about you. It's about a shared experience within a community of actual people. Okay, now I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm a professor in a seminary. I'm 
closer to the end of my career than I am to the beginning. I think it's going to be a long career if I keep going that much longer. What can I do in my classrooms to make students aware of celebrity and what they can do to keep this from happening, this desire to be a celebrity in their life? It's a really good question. And in some ways, I don't, I feel limited in answering because I haven't spent a lot of time in, well, I haven't spent any time in seminary. And I have not tried to teach young seminarians who I'm sure are coming in with lots of big dreams and like a true good desire to serve the Lord in the local church. I think a part of the trick of this conversation is that so often it starts with good motives. Mm -hmm. Evangelicals tend to think, I can use a big platform to draw more people to Christ. If this platform, this celebrity power enables me to reach more people for the gospel, why would I say no to that? It's just a tool that I can use without recognizing that it's not a neutral tool. The tool changes you in the process. But a few things that come to mind, and this just goes back to what we've been talking about, is there something to be said about starting small and being content with starting small and not thinking of the work of the church leader as numerical growth, but as spiritual depth and spiritual rootedness. I think about the work of a pastor being the work of a shepherd. You know, Jesus gives us that image of himself. If pastors are like Jesus in this regard, you If you're a shepherd, you have to know your sheep to be able to care for them well. And it seems to me that it becomes much harder to do that with the distancing effects of the stage and the lights and multimedia approaches to ministry. The distance that creates means it's hard to actually get to know people in your spiritual community who are looking to you as their shepherd. I would... Tell your seminarians not to think about book publishing anytime soon. (laughs) And I know that's very, that sounds very hypocritical of me because I have written two books. But also, my vocational path is oriented around writing. And I would say there's something, you know, when you hear a very young pastor pontificate on something that you just think you just haven't lived enough life 20 years down the road you will have go- you will have gleaned the wisdom and the rootedness that life will provide some of it is you need to experience hard things you need to experience failure or a kind of humiliation before being prepared for the kind of teaching that a book might provide you because book publishing can bring you into the national stage and spotlight again in a way that can easily pull you away from the work of shepherding and staying connected to the local church. So I would say perhaps not yet on book publishing, maybe someday, not yet. I was at one of these emerging conferences and they had Jana, Jana Reese, right? Jana Reese is the Mm -hmm. editor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was, they wanted to talk about publishing and she asked me to attend the room. And it was all, you know, about 20 
skinny jeans people. (laughs) She looks at him and the first thing she says is, you want to write your memoir? Get over yourself. We're not interested. (laughs) And I thought that was such, it was a hard word, but it was so true. Mm -hmm. Is that, you know, we need to get past that to the, so I, that was really good. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. I had to say that about Jana. It was such a good point. (laughs) Yes. If Eugene Peterson writes, you know, Eugene Peterson's memoir. Okay. We're ready for that. You've done it. You've lived it. You're at the, yes, you're ready to write a memoir, but not the like 25 year old who, yeah, I know we talk a lot in Christian circles about accountability. And I don't think any, I haven't met any Christian leaders who would say that they don't value it and try to practice it. But I think, is there a way to, at the seminary stage, foster a, not just a receptivity, but a welcome embrace of accountability among people who are going to step into ministry not just giving it lip service, but people who actively are putting in place real structures of accountability. And that I don't have a particular, it doesn't have to be a denomination. You know, I don't have a particular kind of church structure in mind, but preparing people to surround themselves with others who can say the hard word if needed and who can ask the hard questions and who can say, I think this is a blind spot of yours we're offering this truth out of love. You know, we love you. And because we love you, not just for what you can accomplish for our church, but we love you as a person, we need to draw attention to this so that you can made well and that our church and our community can be healthier. Those are good, really good points. That's good. I'd like you to come to class someday. (laughs) Okay. But do you think that seminarians would listen to a journalist? You know what, Caitlin, you've earned... You've earned a place to be heard. So I think they'd listen to you. I know you've written a book and that kind of gives people a certain cachet. You've written two books and you worked at CT, but you've been around the block enough that you're not a 23-year-old graduate of Calvin who has a theory to propose. You've had some tough experiences that have given you, and yes, you haven't pastored, but you watch. Mm -hmm. And... They need to hear from people who are watching. So, yeah, I think they'd listen. Well, I kind of just asked that tongue-in-cheek, but thank you for those really kind words. I'm happy to drop by anytime. Well, one of the things that I noticed in the book, you talk about friendship. And I think about pastors and how hard it is sometimes to have authentic friendship, but the need for people who can both tell you and remind you that you are a beloved child of God outside of what you offer to the kingdom and through your ministry, but just inherently you're a beloved child of God. But also people who can say, here's where I think you're wrong. Here's where I see some struggles or some difficulties and speak into that. So I think friendship is really important. The other thing that you talk about towards the end of the book, you talk about small faithfulness over time. And I've seen in social media, you've been talking about your parent and their example of just long-term faithfulness. And I think those qualities are what we're looking for, not a desire for fame or celebrity, but faithfulness over time. So I think that's really helpful. 
Well, I want to thank Caitlin for being with us. We're talking about celebrities for Jesus. And I want to say that we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks so much.